Just as a reminder, you can visit us at thepandapod.com. That's thepandapod.com to grab our RSS feed, listen directly, and share PandaPod with your family and friends. You can also reach us directly via email through podcast at thepandapod.com. Thanks for listening. Hey everybody, welcome to the new episode of the Panda Pod. As normal, I am here with Rab. Hey there. And Jeff. Hello. And today we have a special bonus friend, John D. Kennedy. Um, This episode we're going to talk a little bit about role-playing games and um, other types of games that we enjoy. And so, John, um, if you could just give a little... Uh, little introduction for yourself. Let everybody know what you're about, and we'll uh, we'll get going. Yeah, so I'm a uh, John D. Kennedy. Uh, I've been working in the gaming industry for over 20 years, uh, about as long as I've known uh, Wiggy and Jeff. And um, I've worked on a lot of projects, uh, such as um, Power Rangers, the role playing game, My Little Pony, the role playing game, Star Trek Adventures, and uh, The World of Darkness. That's awesome. So. What what's the most recent thing that you've worked on? Uh, most recently, and uh, if I can get the title right, uh, <laughs> is um, Power Rangers: A Jump Through Time, and it is our uh, our source book for all things time travel and the um, in the Power Rangers universe. And it was actually the first project I worked on with Renegade, and one of my first projects working on with uh, with Power Rangers, which. I was that kid who loved Power Rangers and secretly loved them, even going through high school. Oh, my God. I loved Power Rangers. I remember in probably fifth grade, I went to a county fair and they had like uh, toss a ping pong ball into a um, fishbowl kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I landed mine and I picked a, a little like framed portrait of the Green Ranger. That's what I picked. I remember as a kid, I... Uh, I don't know why I felt so proud about this, but I spent my birthday money buying a Japanese version of the the White Ranger and the Tiger Zord, and it, I didn't know it at the time because it looked weird. I thought it was going to be the next season, but it was the the Sentai stuff, the Super Sentai stuff. So when it premiered on the American show, I was a little confused because the White Ranger looked completely different. But I still love the fact that I had you know this, and it, it was cheap and flimsy, but to this day, the the White Tiger Zord is still one of my favorites. Yeah, green and green and white were were my favorites. I mean, I think I think most most guys probably had them as their favorites once once green came out, right? Like Tommy was it was essentially the most the most popular, I think. Um and that that also includes me. <laughs> I definitely was a um uh, a giant fan of Power Rangers. When I was when I was in elementary school, you know, like everybody's playing Power Rangers. Got a group of friends, and um, in my school, I was the only white kid, and I was also fat, and I also had glasses, um, and so I was always Blue Ranger. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I I didn't like it at first, but then I I took it on as a special cause um, and leaned into the role a little bit. 
he got cooler as we got older. Yeah, because you realize he was the only one paying attention to anything. Yeah, I think he literally defeats a bad guy by unplugging it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So what was your your role? Um, Was it is it um, is it writing? Is it were you part of um, like any of the the product line work? Uh, At Renegade, um, or at least this book, I was co-writer with Brian Steele. Uh, which we split at 50-50. And pretty much Brian just said, hey, you're really good at writing about weird timelines that don't actually exist. So that's your thing. And I'm like, I don't know if I should feel insulted, but actually I feel, I really love this. <laughs> uh, I'm saying I'm the best fake historian on the market. I, I think I'd agree. I think I'd agree with that. So, so do you um, do you play uh, any paradox like strategy games at all? I feel like that's good fake history. It is. Oh man, I used to play Eve uh, back in the day with my my spreadsheets and everything. Because um, that's what you do. You give yourself a job after school, not a job yeah, that makes yep. money. <laughs> you do regardless. No, just a good job not making it World of Warcraft. All right. <laughs> I mean, that's what we're doing now at almost forty. Right, like that's what that's what that's what we're doing here. So that definitely tracks. Um, <laughs> um, anything, anything else that you've been been working on recently? Oh yeah, um, at Gen Con we dropped Star Trek Lower Decks, the role playing game, and everyone loved it, which was so good because the problem with writing comedy is that if you like. Like, you know, there's bad jokes, there's good jokes, but what we don't really talk about is the mediocre jokes, and that's the most painful. Because if I told you guys a pun right now, you might groan, you might laugh. If I just write bad comedy, it's painful. And thankfully, we had an amazing team, and it it turned out really well. It, it really beat my expectations, and we sold out at Gen Con, so clearly people loved it. Is that based on the cartoon? Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Is that like a license de- like license type deal, or did they tap tap the company, or uh, both? Because uh, Modiphius has the license for Star Trek, but we also got to talk to the showrunners, and man, they told us so much like amazing things about the show that didn't even occur to us. Uh, like, do any of you watch it? I haven't. I... I haven't picked that one up yet. Although it's on my list, it's something I do want to check out. Yeah, me either. I haven't I haven't picked it up yet, but I have I do keep seeing it, so I will eventually get to it for sure. It's a blast. Like when it came out, we all thought it was gonna be really mean and just make fun of like, you know, Star Trek fans and Star Trek in general. But it's like it makes fun of it in a really positive way. Like you laugh at the dumbest jokes while watching the show, and it was just like the moment that I heard about it, I wanted to, I pushed for us to make the book. And again, you know, uh, Modiphius, I wouldn't say was hesitant, but, you know, the Jim Johnson who manages the brand goes, no, I think this will be a good idea, but we got to do this right or else this will be the worst book we've ever made. And we got a whole lot of really funny and creative people to help make it. And that's the key because, you know, like I could probably write 10 minutes worth of good jokes, but after that, you've got to hand it off to the next person. Otherwise, the book would be pretty painful, as you know, as I already said. But it was so much fun. Like, you, you always work with the weirdest people on properties. Like, I can't say that I've ever worked with the main actors, but I get to work with the guy who approves scripts. 
And the best thing that we were told was, um, when you guys watch the show, you'll definitely notice this. The main character, Mariner, is never mean on purpose. They're thoughtless and they're rude sometimes, but they're never mean on purpose. So any jokes that she tells, that's her guiding thing, where she's not like trying to be an asshole. She's just, hey, I think I can do this better than you. Let's see if I am. I mean, that would track with most people who would play a Star Wars RPG, right? Because we all think we could do better with hindsight, right? Like, we all think we could make a better decision. So I can see, I can see how that tracks, how that tracks with the audience. What, what's your, your favorite part about working on that IP? I don't know. Uh, I can say it's really, really cool seeing people like come up and ask you to sign their books, but I've got kind of like a I don't know. It's kind of a sillier reason, but it's one that like, you know, it's, it's really helped me with my mom. Like, um, for the audience at home, I grew up with Wiggy and Jeff. So they've met my mom several times. Yeah. Yeah. And my mom was a geek. And, uh, when she would get off work, she'd want to watch, you know, Star Trek, Star Wars, all that. And my mom has always supported me being a writer. And, but my mom, like she'll buy any book that like, you know, I release, but I wouldn't say that she's read them. Even on her bookshelf at home, I've had several books uh, like Stargate that are still shrink-wrapped. But the Star Trek books were the first books that my mom actually started reading. And she would actually have me go through and like dog-ear pages of where I contributed or where I had oversight. And it was just it's just been really nice having my mom be able to read something and she gets it. Rather than, oh, you wrote a book about half-naked ninja. You seem to write a lot of those. i have some questions as somebody who doesn't really know a lot about the industry um so do you um does your company have some kind of or the company that you developed the star trek game with does that have some kind of affiliation with um the company that owns the property oh yeah um so modifius entertainment's uh one of the companies i work with extensively and uh chris birch runs the company he is just really good at sourcing out contacts and um, developing these, you know, long-term deals. Because, you know, sometimes okay. you see a book hit the market and then the book disappears after a certain point. And it's like, oh, what was up with that? And then it gets up in like, you know, a half price book, you know, rubbish bin. But Star Trek was just one of those things where I can say I was there when uh, Chris got the news. I was visiting him in London and we were just, we were playing a board game. And the next thing I know, he's dancing through his living room, completely unannounced, just got up, starts dancing. It's me, his wife, and one of his friends just staring across the room as this guy's just literally almost doing like the Chumba Wumba dance. (laughs) We're like, what are you doing? What are you high? What's going on? And he just shows us uh, the email where Paramount, uh, which has managed Star Trek for like the last... I forget how many years, uh, accepted their licensing agreement. And then that was history. That was 20, when did I almost die? 2016. Whoa, we got to revisit that one. Hold yeah, on for sure. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll come to back. We'll come back. To <laughs> I, I do want to say just real quick, though. Um, I was one of the, I think you guys did a Kickstarter for the Star Trek Adventures book. Is that right? Oh, I don't remember. I don't think we did. Oh, we did for Stargate. Okay. I don't remember. It might not have been a Kickstarter. It may have just been a pre-order. But when I saw that book, I I picked it up immediately. And 
unfortunately it's really hard to get my group to play anything but like fantasy um but i i still have that and i i can't wait to give it a shot so, so it's a lot yes. of fun. i so, i um, liked it when i played um i i did that with another group and and we did some podcast on it um and it it's a really fun system J- john was there i did that with john <laughs> um i completely forgot uh, who all was at that table um and it's it's really fun um but it takes the right it does take the right group and and i don't think that group is particularly uh excited about star trek to begin with um but that being said maybe we can convince john to play some some star trek with us later on we i won't put you on the spot john uh, <laughs> all he needs is another dm gig right right <laughs> um but but yeah that's yeah yeah anyway so, okay so um i what i what i was also wondering is um like what um how did you come up how does this company develop the rules for the star trek game in particular do they have like a standard like like base system that they port properties into or i know some companies work like that or is it more like uh they make a unique rules for the particular universe so uh Modifius, they like to use the 2d20 system which uh has been chris birch's and other people's brainchild for years and when we when i learned i was going to be on star trek uh which i have to admit it helped being right there so i could be like dibs please me <laughs> um it was just one of those things where like, we had to figure out how to get the right tone because you can have a really awesome engine under the hood, but if it doesn't quite make you play Star Trek, then people aren't going to want to use it to play Star Trek. Sure. Like, I love D&D. Love it. And I actually think it's a more versatile engine than some people like you know say about it. But D&D would probably not be very good for Star Trek. It's a great engine, but it's not really going to capture that feel. I mean... You're going to sit there and you're going to be like, I'm Captain Kirk and I'm a level 10 paladin. And after like the novelty's worn off, it's going to be like, we got anything else in the world we want to do? You know, anything else that's more fun? Like, you don't want people to come in for the novelty. You want them to stay because they, you know, they're actually invested and have fun. And that's just what we tried to do, which was difficult in a few ways. Because like, one, phasers, really, really hard to make rules for, especially since the show's not very consistent with its internal logic at times sure you've seen episodes where a guy gets shot by a phaser and he's just vaporized on the spot but then another guy gets shot in the arm and it's just a burn that he carries through the rest of the episode and it's the same type of phaser same power level you know and how do you put that in a game because nobody really wants to start playing the game they land on the planet and then three of their party dies in a second so how did you guys tackle that i mean i guess don't get too far into the rules but I probably should talk more about myself. I really talked about Chris Birch a lot, but he actually had a really good design philosophy that I've actually carried into like other games. Like when I worked on My Little Pony, I took that philosophy with me, and I think that's what made My Little Pony a really awesome game. And it's don't make the game that says the thing, make the game to play the thing. And um, basically, we're not telling people how to play a Star Trek experience. We're making a game so so people can play their star trek experience and you know you know they populate the world they they come up with their own adventures and the rules help them do it it's one reason why you know like with phasers like we talked about earlier 
I know one of the the weirder aspects of the system is the effects dice, um, but that helps determine, hey, you got hit by a phaser. What's the phaser do? Roll die. Oh, you're severely wounded, but you're not dead. Because you, know, you took a point, you know, point blank blast from an energy weapon. Should kill most people, but that's not very fun and doesn't fit with the show. So right. we went with that. Cool, and I mean that's also um, very interesting because I mean if if you if you're going with the approach of rolling on a table, that table can be adjusted and homebrewed further, leading into the um, the idea that people are crafting their own Star Trek, you know, universe, right? And I love it when people tell me it's like, hey, I came up with these rules because I thought your rules, you know, they didn't really work, and I'm like, oh, tell me what you did because that's really cool. Uh, the only time that someone's ever suggested a new rule to me that I was really hesitant on was putting in a point buy system because the system wasn't designed for point buy and that broke it really quickly. And I say that with respect to the person who came up with it. It's just when we designed it, it was really hard to get the system to move on to a point buy system, which people at home, a game where you build your character by spending points, like, you know, instead of rolling up random stats and everything, you just boom, 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 this stat costs this much, this trait costs this much. That's what point by is. Yeah, it's it, it's really important to get the right system together with the, with with the that thematic feel, you know, like it's why sometimes I really appreciate a game with really simple rule structure, right? And it's why game or game systems like uh, Big Eye Small Mouth were so popular. They're so versatile because they're so simple, right? Um, and it and it kind of goes with that theory that you're talking about where you know like we want people we want the rules to support players and gms from being able to play the type of game that they want to play we want to support them we don't want to tell them their story right and and having that that system's really important so i can definitely see how how that's a really important choice for them to make um to have to make when when designing a game like that um with with the newer with the newer game um with below decks what do you think um was your your biggest contribution to that um so you were a co-writer but what part of what part of the things that you wrote do you think were was like the biggest impact to the game um as it, as it stands, I release. That's a pretty good question. Um, with Lower Decks, I'd have to say that my biggest contribution, um, besides all the fiction and writing up the timeline for it, I think it was really just helping go through and making sure everyone's tone matched up. Because the thing with the book is that it's really hard for an individual writer to like see their own imprint on a book because it's a group effort, and it should be. And making sure that everybody's tone like matches up. So that way you're not just getting like, you know, a random person walking up each chapter and telling you a completely different version of the same story. You want to make sure everybody kind of all works together. And, and that can be, that's really rough. Like that's rougher than a lot of people think. Like every writer has their own style, kind of like an artist. And there are some writers that I know where, I know this sounds really pedantic. This is going to sound super nerdy for people listening at home, but sentence structure really does tell you who wrote what. Like if I can tell from reading a section where if it's like, if the sentence has no less than 30 words in it, it's this writer. If this person, if this section has a whole lot of like parentheses and M dashes in it, it's this writer. 
and going through and getting it all to, to match up in the end, that's, it's pretty tough, but it's in the end, you know, when you get it to work, it really works. Okay. Yeah. I mean, usually when I read an RPG book, it seems like it's written by one person. So you must be the mastermind behind that. <laughs> I wish. No, I'm pretty sure that one of my editors is going to listen to this later and be like, yeah, I've read Kennedy's stuff. It is a chore. <laughs> yeah I, I was about to say the flip side of that is uh the exalted world right um and how every different book is like the same story written from a different perspective and there there are different writers um and you can definitely tell by the tone of the books right um how how come how it was just completely thought of um quite differently by by each writer who touched it Right. It's not all even in the in the court, the the source book. Right. It's it's a little it's a little fragmented. So I can see how definitely how important that is to get that tone, because it does make a big difference um, when when someone has to go through and read all of it. <laughs> so it gets even more complicated when you have to put in mechanics, because like. So a lot of people at home probably don't realize is that some of the modern RPGs, they literally shop out their mechanics to different writers. And you'll have like the core of how a system works. But if I say, you know, hey, Jeff, uh, I really need 5,000 words about undersea adventures, including how not to drown and how to swim. Uh, that's your assignment for this month. And you'll be like, how in the world do I write up special rules for swimming and not dying while swimming? And that's rough, especially when I got to take Jeff's work and, you know, and Wiggy's work and I got to combine it with my work and everyone else's work and then making sure that I've not just made like, you know, a really awful salad and making something's probably more like a chili. That analogy seems so much better in my head. <laughs> <laughs> the analogy works better the hungrier you are. So I that's really interesting because I, I would have thought that mechanics were just like a completely different team's job. Like I, I had no idea that the writers were also coming up with the mechanics for a game for me, like in my mind, and maybe this is like coming from the it world. Like there's no way like a, a writer would touch the, the coding for the, the back end of the, you know, whatever you're making. Right. So you, but as a writer, you do, you do all of it. You do the mechanics, everything. And God forbid a programmer ever touched documentation. Right. Yeah. As a programmer. <laughs> Actually, a lot of like the best people in the industry who work on mechanics usually do work in IT in some form because uh, you really need that mind. Like I could suggest what I think is going to be the most brilliant mechanic in the world, but you need someone who's really good at math to just sit down, play with it a thousand times and be like, hey, this, this stops working after this point. Or there's a memory leak, kind of like with software, but there's a memory leak and the whole engine falls apart. Or even like some of the dumbest things that pop up where it's like, Hey, your game system's great, but tell me right now without looking anything up, how do you handle um, an arm wrestling contest in the game? <laughs> and you hear that and you think, Oh, that's dumb. You know, it's an arm wrestling contest, but then arm wrestling is grappling rules. It's strength rules. It's, you know, what happens when I've got them pinned. It it's weird how like all that just gets. So like the things you don't think of, because you know, I, I'm primarily a writer, although I do, you know, RPG engines as well. But I'm always thinking of things like story and how this can like facilitate gameplay. But you really need that person to kind of step up and be like, hey, don't take this the wrong way, but this really sucks. So you've got to change this or the game won't be any good. 
And they're just as valid when they contribute that because you need people to do that. You need the play testers and you need people who work with mechanics. I mean, we've all played games where like the game just gets screwy after a certain point, like um, first edition exalted, which I love, but we had some pretty broken combos when we played back in high school. Oh, for sure. Well, we also, it was, it was, it harkens back to the book was really hard to understand because it was so fragmented and the rules, like the rules weren't written in a way that were understandable by people, even by people who had played other RPGs. It was still difficult to understand how to get the mechanics correct in the first place. So what you have to do, if you want to play that world is make up your own, um, like homebrew rules to make everything fit together. Right. Which is what you don't want. I would assume as somebody who's releasing a book, right? You want, you want everything to work the way you've designed it to work. But I mean, you're forcing people to create homebrew rules and workarounds for something that doesn't necessarily need them. They were just, it was just explained in a really wonky way. So that's why, like, I think the work that you do is really important because, if we don't have that, it takes time away from playing to figure, have to stop to figure something out, right? Yeah, and like, the thing which I think some people forget is that we're playing these games because they're games and to have fun. And I do agree that like a lot of RPGs should have like a point or maybe a message or maybe just like, you know, and challenge people to think of new ideas. But then there are also days when we get off of work and it's Friday and we've decided that this Friday, rather than going to a bar or doing anything else, we're sitting down and we're playing a game. And if the book is frustrating or the book just doesn't really deliver, well, people are going to feel like, hey, I gave up my Friday for nothing. And especially as you get older and you have to like work out sitters for kids or if you worked a double shift, so you're getting out at six and you're exhausted, but you, you really want to play. You kind of want to reward people's, you know, enthusiasm and you don't want to punish them by, you know, putting in, we call them like dead mechanics, where there's some games where like, you don't need certain mechanics at all, because they just don't matter. And I even remember like when we played Exalted once, and yeah, I'm pulling way back to the golden oldies, I made like a warrior monk and we were trying to take down this giant door and I used the, the combat ability that the monks had and, uh, it flopped. Like I got all the, the successes on my dice. And I like did like the Kamehameha charge up thing from DBC, but <laughs> I hit the wall and nothing, nothing at all. And it immediately made me think, Oh, you know what? Priests suck. I don't want to play a priest in this game. Why didn't I make just mm-hmm. a Dawn guy? Like, you know, the other people did Then I could knock down this door and not be on the other side, pawing at it like a dog. Like, can I come in with my friends now? And <laughs> The weirdest things you remember 20 years later. For sure. Speaking of 20 years later, um, I don't know if you know this or not, but you ran the first RPG I ever played in. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Um, I was working at the like everything's a dollar store across from the game shop in Washington Square Mall. And you were running Werewolf. And I don't know if I ever sat in on that. I feel like I probably didn't. But you ran shortly after a... Uh, Vampire the Masquerade game. Oh, uh, yeah. And yeah. I played a gargoyle for some reason. I don't know why I didn't play a vampire, but um, that was the first RPG I ever played, and I fell in love with it, man. That's thanks to you. I really appreciate that. Oh, thank you. Um, what are you running now? Like, are, are you DMing anything at the moment? I am getting ready to run a game of Aliens, 
which I am really excited because I've like, I love the movies. It was actually one of the movies I watched with my mom, but the book's really good. And it really recreates the feel of the first movie, which, you know, spoiler alert, you're fighting a xenomorph. Right. (laughs) Not going to go well. But um, we're excited. I'm excited to run it. Right on. So what system is, is alien built around? I'm still like reading into the book. It's a D six based system. It's from free league. Um, they do a lot of really good work. Uh, they also did, um, blade runner and did they do Mork Borg? Yes. Mork Borg. I've played Mork Borg. I love Mork Borg. That's one of the few games I've played besides D and D. That is a, it's a fun game. It is a messed up game to try to explain to people. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, for sure. We eventually switched back to D&D just because the people were um uh my party was like kind of just not doing anything besides hitting each other with we- or hitting enemies with weapons, you know. So it was a little we we kind of wanted a little bit more like variation in combat, if you know what I mean. I lost my eyes in the game I played, so I did not do better than your group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I was a little bit um easy on them as a dm i probably should have been a lot rougher in workborg but i was just getting started i wanted something rules light it's a lot of fun like for uh wiggy jeff i don't know if, were you guys playing the game no no he's told us a little bit about it but please explain it i'm sure not many people in the, the audience probably have so. uh i'm just a fan so you know if people you know say that's not what the game's about you know i don't know i played it actually like three times um but uh you're in a pretty much a fantasy world and the land is dying. Like the bad guys are in the process of winning and you're trying to find either the lost treasure to die happy with money in your hand or find a way out. And the space version of it's also just as messed up where in the space version, you're on a lone ship trying to escape from planets that have been overwhelmed by just this weird cosmic disease thing. And you fight, pretty fucked up people like uh in the fantasy game we fought people where when they got taken to zero hit points their skeletons ripped themselves from their bodies and then started attacking you that's metal i love that oh yeah like the covers are completely metal (laughs) i started trying to listen to death metal to like get in the mindset uh but i quickly gave up on that just because i haven't never really enjoyed the genre (laughs) Oh, I stopped doing that because I really hated it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like to listen to one song every like seven years just to remind myself how much I don't like it. Honestly, that's pretty metal in and of itself. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the first time anybody's ever called me metal or anything that I've ever done. Um, uh, I only listen to one song every seven years. <laughs> yeah, just, just ever. <laughs> it makes me appreciate it that much more right. <laughs> so john you have uh run a lot of games over the years obviously and you've written for a bunch of them what i want to know is do you have any advice for players to make the game better you know, it's easy. To, I think it's easy to dispense advice for the DM, but like how, in your opinion, how do you manage things like, like the ego of wanting to be like the main character in a story that has to be about multiple characters and 
like do you have any just general advice for players on how to be a better like player in an rpg i've got two which um uh, whenever i'm at uh, gaming conventions i always you know run um a panel like how to improve your game um the two biggest things i can think of is for starters try not to railroad like if it's a new player new to D, they'll expect it like they'll be like oh take me on this journey are we going to the castle are we saving the princess but if you've got a group of veteran players like give them the pitch up front and say hey this uh campaign set in dragonlance you know we're on kryn it's going to involve like you know like the the evil goddess tiamat and you're all like cool knights trying to stop her from conquering the world but then let the players go like I mean, obviously the players are going to want to like sit down and play and they're like, cool, we're in Dragonlance, but the players might like anything could happen. Like trying to control players is kind of like trying to make, you know, take order to chaos. And I'm not saying that players suck. It's more that the players are all like, Hey, my backstory is I'm the prince from like, you know, a long forgotten kingdom. And I want to restore my family's title, which doesn't really jive with, Hey, I'm a sorcerer and I want to go to this island in the middle of the ocean where secret dark power is and I'm going to use it to conquer the world. Those two things, you can't realistically accomplish them outside of a big campaign. And the vast majority of games die like after a couple sessions. It's just the nature of it where I earlier when I mentioned how, you know, gaming is an activity we've all agreed upon where we sit down to have fun. And sometimes games just peter out. It's not because they're bad. It's not because the players or the GM is bad. It's really just more of a, hey, this was fun. Not really digging it. There's another game I'd like to join or, you know, anything else. And so try to just leave your game as open open world as possible. Um, like Skyrim. Skyrim's like you've all played Skyrim, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like do it like that, where, you know, I, I am the living embodiment of the joke where um, the main quest is literally the last quest I will ever do in any Elder Scrolls game, <laughs> in any Fallout game. In Fallout 4, uh, I'm pretty sure when I'm, spoiler for people who haven't seen Fallout 4 or haven't played Fallout 4, when I encounter my kid later on in the game and he's the old man, I thought, oh shit, so much time's passed. No, this tracks, this tracks. <laughs> Because I'm not going to do the main quest if I I wanted to go help the Minutemen or hey, the <laughs> right, right. I know my baby got kidnapped, but come on, I'm building settlements like it's The Sims over here, and that really does apply to tabletop games because you know you never know what's going to happen, and if your players say, hey, I know we've got to get to the castle to talk to the king, there's a dungeon over there, and we heard there's treasure, let them go through the dungeon. Don't be like the royal guard shows up and takes you to the palace. Be like all right, we're doing a dungeon crawl this session. That's what they want. Right on. What What do you think is the ideal length for a game? Because I know a lot of times when, pretty much every time that I've started a game with my friends, uh, my, my normal gaming group, we don't really have like an, an end goal that, in my opinion, we'll ever actually reach in the game. You know what I mean? Um, and we just kind of get started and we just go on these little adventures, but they just kind of peter out because I think they don't have like a clear end goal. Um, but what do you think is the, like the ideal length for a game to keep player players interested, you know? And yeah. Yeah. For games, like for the session, it's about four to five hours. Like I rem- I know when we were all teens, we would play for like 12 hours at a time because that's how we rolled. But 
four to five hours, you know, you've got people's attention, you've got them excited. And then when they start to get tired or bored with it, if you end there, it's great because then the players will be like, oh, then I got to come back next week to find out what happened with that dungeon. But for campaigns, oh man, that's such a tricky question because like, I'll be honest, you know, I've run games that have lasted for a long time and I've also, you know, I'm also preparing myself internally to be like, we're sitting down to play Aliens. We're all going to love it. And then one session later, oh, they didn't really love it. Okay, try another group. But I would say just from experience, just from if it's a system that's new to everyone and you're not sure if you're going to like it, five to six sessions seems like that'd be enough for everybody to get their arc. Someone told me once, plan for a number of sessions equal to your players plus one. Um because, uh, you know, that way, you know, the players can get, like, their quests motivated and they can actually affect the plot. And that's pretty much how you can do it. But obviously, there's going to be people who are like, oh, I've run a... I, I know a guy who's run a campaign for 30 years. They still use AD&D. And they meet, apparently, every other month. And the players, literally the players at this point, have grandchildren. And it's like, wow, you've been... Yeah, no, like, respect. Uh, I don't think I'll ever run a 30-year campaign. I mean, respect respect just for being okay with dealing with Thacko for that long. Oh, my God. The math? Oh, jeez. Like, it's... I use even the chart. But yeah, but even for specialists, it takes a really long time. (laughs) 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 Oh, Oh, that sounds terrible. I mean, having a campaign go for 30 years sounds amazing. Like, I th- feel like that's everybody everybody's dream, right? Like, just to have a continuing world that you built for 30 years, like, that's that's so awesome. I know but, if I could go back in time and keep a game going, I know there's one. Like, I, it, it would be our original Exalted game with uh, Stephen Flum was running it for us. And, like, I think about that game all the time. Like I'm, I don't know that I'll ever get that high from a game, ever again. Like, if that could have kept going forever, I would have been fine with it. Is is that the one where where people were attempting to steal TVs that didn't exist? Or yeah, Joe did do that once. Yeah. Okay. 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 All right. I was just trying to map which one because we have played several different campaigns of of Exalted, so I'm trying to get in my head which one was the original. But I digress. <laughs> thirty years, thirty years is is amazing. I definitely mm-hmm. enjoy that for sure. Um, what? So, for as long as we've been playing, and as long as you've been working on RPGs, what's your favorite? It's a two part question. So, one, what's your favorite system, and what's your favorite? thematic uh games assuming that they're separate but they could be the same that's really tough but going with my gut instinct because i feel this will be funnier i think my favorite system uh is still the system, which is used for all flesh must be eaten because i felt like that system you got it really it was narrow and specific enough and yet broad enough you could make any kind of character. And when I was in um, college, we played that a lot. Um, even our very disastrous adventure where we went to the Planet of the Apes because the Ape Source book came out and Ape Zombies suck. 
but uh, I just really like that system. And I know that you don't really see a whole lot of games that use it anymore, but uh, Witchcraft, which uses that system, tons of fun. Even though they never finished it, there's like books that say, oh, the expanded rules for this will be in our next book. And the book never comes. <laughs> sure. Man, theme? like, um, you yeah, know, really I mean, it doesn't have to be like a specific like genre, but like like story. Like which one has your favorite like background story history? Uh, probably the world of darkness, which feels like a cop out because it's so big, but it doesn't. No, it doesn't. I mean, it encompasses a lot of different themes. Yeah, and like you know, it, it's a lot of fun to you know, it it it, it does need the weird moments where you try to talk to people. It's like, oh, what were you doing tonight? Well, I was a were reptile who spent his day escaping from the terrarium he found himself locked in because if he didn't escape, werewolves were going to blow up the moon. And people just stare at you like. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 definitely one of my favorites too. Um, it, there's a lot of fun to be had with playing with the dark side of themes, and I feel like like that world does it really well without getting to. Um, yeah, I mean, you can go as far as you want to go, but most people hit a very specific comfort level and they nail that comfort level in the book and the themes really well. Um, being a social game, it, it, it lets you see kind of like the dark humor that people have. Um, but at the same time, not, not going too far. Right. And, and it's a really hard balance to hit. And I feel like they do that really well. Um, Plus, that, that would be my side. Plus, from like, and I'm just gonna be blunt here. From a pure power fantasy perspective, what is cooler than actually getting to play as the katana wielding vampire assassin? I know we've all made fun of that. That just that archetype, just because it seems so cheesy. Like you know, films like Underworld, but you actually get to sit down and mow down like you know a wave of werewolves, or you know, take on a SWAT team and win. And there's a little bit of a power fantasy going on where it's like, you know, I'm I'm a total badass, and this game lets me be a total badass. I mean, I'll admit it, Underworld series is probably one of my favorites. Even, but I really do like cheese. Um, I really like cheese in my movies. Um, and 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 Jeff also knows that I I really enjoy bad movies when they're really bad. Um, <laughs> that's one of my favorite things. I mean, you may know this too. But I really enjoy movies that are bad. Like, uh, what was that that time movie? That's really bad, Jeff. What was that called? Uh, I'm not sure. It's time something like time. Time bandits. Yeah, time bandits. Oh, I love so time bad. bandits. It's just a classic, man. It's so it's so bad though that it's so fantastic, right? Like, oh, but yeah, Underworld's got all that cheese, and and I, I really like that. I really like that, and I like that feeling that you you were kind of talking about, just being able to to be powerful, and it's okay to be powerful, and it's expected, right? Well, games actually like they can help people deal with complex issues. Uh, I remember when RPGs were just this super super nerdy hobby to explain to people, where people were all, were just assumed the worst about you if you said, "Oh, I play in a D and D group. We meet every Friday." And they thought of like pocket protectors, you know, thick glasses, no social skills, which 
by and large, the majority of gamers are definitely like, you know, they're very socially conscious. Um, they're very, you know, they're very chill people. But role-playing games are now actually seeing a lot of use in prisons and in therapy clinics because they allow people to not be you for a second. And as someone who's like talked to like actual therapists about gaming, the reason why RPGs are important to people trying to cope with a serious issue is because there we all have had days, and this is me explaining what they told me. We've all had days where we didn't want to be us, where you know, you get up in the morning and like, if I know I have to go to work and it's really early, I don't want to be Kennedy. I want to be someone else who doesn't have to go to work in the morning. But then there are people who deal with complex issues like PTSD or um, abuse, other things, severe depression. And role-playing games literally allow you to sit down and be like, hey, I'm not John Kennedy. I'm going to play, you know, um, like Jason, you know, Paladin of Paylor, and I'm here to stop the Dark Lord. And it's such a simple notion. Like, you just think about it like, oh, you don't want to be you for a while. But it actually lets people sit down and become empowered because then you're no longer, you know, guy paying off his car loan or worried about, you know, is he going to make rent this month? You're a hero. A hero with cool powers who has the respects of fictional people, but it, it just allows you to work through things. And I've seen players where... They're able to just sit down and to challenge the things that they couldn't challenge before. And a friend, the same friend, um, she's been taking it to prisons where uh, you've probably all seen articles about inmates play D&D. And obviously, you know, prison's a serious place. You know, it should be, you know, a luxury resort. If you're in prison, you likely committed a crime. That means you should be there. But I've always been a big advocate that prisons should be about rehabilitating people not just incarcerating them until the day we let them go. And role-playing games, they let people work through their past trauma. They let them feel valued where maybe they didn't feel valued before. So they're able to sit down and, yeah, I know I just joked about, you know, cars and everything else, but there could be a guy out there right now in prison during his one hour of yard time, and he's choosing to spend it in the library with his friends playing D&D, and he's realizing that he has he can be a hero. He doesn't have to be the villain. And I think that's kind of like the magical thing about RPGs because we're now seeing this unexpected and really powerful bonus that I know I've probably used throughout my life and a bunch of other gamers. But now we're seeing a lot of people being able to sit down and be like, hey, gaming is actually changing my life for the better. Instead of the usual thing where we always talk about like, you know, gaming is like what you do when you're bored or say goodbye to your, your, your checking account. Which, as I say this, I'm surrounded by probably like a thousand dollars worth of gaming shit as is. But I just think that's so wonderful. And I really like that we have people like people, professional therapists with years of education behind them now looking at role playing games saying, hey, there's something to that. You know, there's a, an article that actually just came out. Um, I'm trying to remember when it actually came out. I think it was the very end of um, August um, where they brought D&D to um, uh, a prison in Texas with inmates that are facing death row. Mm -hmm. And it literally, um, I mean, they obviously did some things that have given them a sentence on death row um but it it did kind of um give them a new like 
something to be excited about for life. Um, and and it, regardless of whether or not you agree with those those stipulations or not, um, I think it's important for for people. I mean, even if you've done something like that, I still there's still people, right? And and it's torture not to be able to disassociate every once in a while, and and to be able to give people that ability is, is something that's that just seems amazing to me. Um, as far as and to know that that's how far this has spread. Like this is death row. Like this is the, this is like the people who have done the worst crimes, but yeah. they're still people. They still have feelings. They still are are human beings. And and I can't imagine that that's anything less than the most stress you could possibly be under. And like, so what are we gonna kill them twice? You know what I mean? Like right. <laughs> No, I, I absolutely agree. And also, and it happens. What if evidence is found later that exonerates some of their crime and then they're no longer on death row. And I'm not saying obviously that every person on death row is secretly innocent. Uh, I do believe that there are some cases where that the evidence is strong enough, then they did it. But yeah, we shouldn't really be torturing people. And I would much prefer it if by the time we executed, you know, like the world's worst killer, that hopefully by the end we've rehabilitated him because otherwise it just feels like we took a really long time to execute a guy and wasted so much money and time and resources on him and tortured him at the same time when we could have just, you know, like not. <laughs> right. <laughs> just not done that thing. Yeah. And yeah. actually it's just going to sound weird. Um, I've never done time, but I did spend a month in the ICU and uh, circling back same, to... Same, that's the same thing. That's the same yeah. thing. <laughs> I nearly died once, which I know we we're going to circle back to. Uh, sure. I perforated my small intestine while at Gen Con. And I didn't know it, but I had necrotic tumors inside of me, which were literally eating me. And I survived, obviously. Or your otherwise your ghost catching software is really good. <laughs> um, but it, um, it really sucked because I went from Gen Con which was a lot of fun. We debuted Star Trek. We were, you know, all this cool stuff. I thought I had a stomach bug towards the end. And no, um, I was hemorrhaging a lot of blood and it was, it sucked. And the reason why I was in the ICU for a month is my immune system had essentially collapsed because I was fighting something called sepsis. And they couldn't let me go because if they did, any germ in the world would have murdered me. And I was hooked up to all these, you know, tubes and everything, all these, all this equipment. I couldn't leave the bed without setting off the equipment or without having to have a nurse come through and disconnect me. And I had, you know, a TV in my room. So, you know, it wasn't as bad as prison. And none of my experience should be considered as bad as prison. But I was also not able to go anywhere. And it was just... The messed up part about this is like when you have sepsis, they're, they try all these things where they're like, make them really happy. We've proven through science that being happy will help you beat sepsis. Don't ask <laughs> me. <laughs> this could literally be a big lie that I was told, and now I'm telling you the lie, but that's basically what happened. And now being stuck in a room watching really bad, you know, I was watching Comedy Central, which I haven't watched in a long time. And I just remember sitting there getting really mad 
that I was watching um, The Sorcerer's Apprentice. But apparently movies that are shown on cable now, it's five minutes on, five minutes of commercials. Right. So I would nod off and like fall asleep because of the pain meds. I would wake up and I would think, oh, no, I've missed so much of the movie. And only like 30 minutes has gone by. But that's, yeah, just being stuck in a room, you know, where it was kind of torture. Because all I wanted to do was to go out and do anything in the world. And um, they could have let me have, um, I had my cell phone, but, you you know, limited to what I could do there. But I wasn't allowed to, like, touch surfaces because there could be germs there. And everybody who came in, you had to wear, like, a mask and... The nurses were all in like their full getup. This was think COVID wear before there was COVID. Right. And so it was just harsh. Like my only visitors were people who had to scrub up before they walked in the room. And also internally, I'm counting all the money that I'm just spending by the second of existing in that room. And so I can't imagine being put in a small room, having none of the creature comforts. I mean, and just trying to wait out a four year sentence because I don't know, possession of marijuana or uh, too many parking tickets. Obviously, if it's somebody that's like, oh, no, that's a murderer. He killed a kid. Yeah, bad person deserves to be punished. But I can't imagine that for for other criminals. Well, speaking of um, the exact opposite of escapism in RPGs, I have to ask you, since your name is John, have you played the RPG Everyone is John? No. (laughs) Have you heard of it? No, what is this? Uh, okay, it's 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 a game that you generally play for only one session, and um, all of the the characters except for the DM control different voices in the head of an insane man in Minneapolis named John. Um, and each time John uh, attempts a simple task, even like walking, um, it, you know that requires a dice roll. And if John passes out or falls asleep, the other voices start vying for control. I I really like this because I have seen um, being John Malkovich, so I would just love it uh, to play this game. Even though it would probably just be really really weird, and if you were inside my head, you would probably have to get used to like random songs playing just all the time. I was about to, I was about to say, is this hitting too close to home, John? Is this something you deal with on a daily basis already? Well, he's not from Minneapolis, so you're good there. Yeah, but he's I from me, so good luck. <laughs> right. right. He is from Annapolis. That's true. So One it's of close them. enough. So it's close enough. Right. Annapolis, but not Annapolis. Right. Yeah, correct. To be clear. No, that suggests a much cooler job. Uh like Marine or something. Right. <laughs> so John, I, I want to ask you some questions that are a little they're about RPGs, but they're also a little bit of a topic that we, we touch on pretty frequently. We're curious about what your opinions are um, with AI in the RPG world. And, and on... if you don't mind starting with ChatGPT, since you're a writer, I feel like that's a little bit more relevant. Uh, I always like talking about my competition. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm just going to give you the 100% just real hot take here. And I hope I don't alienate any of my colleagues who listen to this. The genie is out of the bottle. We can't uninvent AI. I don't like how it was invented. I don't like the fact that, you know, it was trained on stolen work. That sucks. Like, and they could just start over. 
They could just make a, you know, a more voluntary based AI model. They could do that, but they're not. And not to sound defeatist, it's just at some point we're going to have to accept that we live in a world where I can type a couple of phrases into a prompt and it'll give me a piece of artwork or a story. And this was always going to happen. I mean, we can't just say that AI was going to pop out and it'll be, you know, data from Star Trek. Like, and I'm not saying that if your work's been stolen that you have to like, you know, like shut up and get used to it. I mean, obviously try to fight it through any means you've got. Sure. The thing that we have to acknowledge though, is that it's not going away. And I don't use it because I don't need to use it. Uh, I've, I've worked in this industry so long, I, I think my record speaks for itself. I think that there's ethical uses for AI, where if you are making a gaming book and you don't know what the image is in your brain and you play around with like mid-journey, boom, that gives you the basis of it. And then go to your artists and say this, but yours, but add these things I want to see in it. But don't just, you know... Like, there's a woman um, who on Twitter was talking about how she makes, she spends 150 bucks in, um, for mid-journey chat uh, GBT and a bunch of other stuff. But then she makes $300 in passive income from her Amazon store. And she makes really awful romance novels. Cause, <laughs> yeah, no, she just gives it a prompt. And it's like, couple meets on a boat. The boat gets shipwrecked you know, tell me this story. And she uses an editing AI to edit it. And she makes these books and the reviews are bad. Like the books, like apparently some of them change like tone halfway through one of the books, the main character dies like 30 pages in. And then it's all people talking about his funeral. Apparently. (laughs) Hell yeah. I would read that though. (laughs) I think that just for the time being, until some kind of oversight can step in and this is going to suck. And I know this is painful for me to say, as it probably is for like writers out there to hear, we've really just got to stay the course and be like, Hey, quality is going to win out. Right. And again, if your work's been stolen by one of these engines, you know, you don't have to just sit down and shut up, you know, be vocal. Um, the writer's guild, um, they may have won the strike, We'll see. It's going to depend on the next couple of days. And it was regarding AI, which. Right. Like even companies that I've worked with and um, like they've talked about how they've got departments higher up that are looking into AI because it's the technology that's out right now. It would be like if we're, I don't know, um, early 2000s. And I said, no, Jeff, we're not doing Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi is a fad. Who the hell would use Wi-Fi? We can plug in your computer, to the Internet. And right. I, yeah, and that's that's basically my thoughts on it. I have I have a a thought around this, and I I think you're right. When I, I don't I don't necessarily I think in the short term quality wins, right? I, I I I agree with that wholeheartedly. But I also see a scenario because the the entire point of AI is for AI to learn what's better, right? So eventually we get to a point where it decides. It just as an, as a, a loose example, that it decides that the sitcom, um, like the architecture of a sitcom, is what it is perfect, right? 
sitcoms dominated TV for a really long time. Sure. Right. But it takes something different to really capture the heart of a person. And those types of ideas, like the AI is going to get to the point where it thinks sitcoms are the end all be all because that's what what it everybody keeps leaning it towards when it keeps learning. Right. And then John's going to come out with South Park. Right. Because well, he's not paying attention because he's not using AI. He's using his own like there's something special about the human creativity spark. That yeah, and the best sitcoms really are the ones that subverted it. I mean, it subverted it at least in some way, right? It, it, even even if they're just traditional sitcoms, still they still like introduce some new element that wasn't there before. So if if you're just if you have an AI just looking at past sitcoms, they're just going to regurgitate that. Yeah, yeah, and and that's why I really I, I agree with you, John. I think I, I do think quality right now quality means a lot because it's the tech's bad right but the tech is going to learn and it is going to get better but i think the tech's going to pigeonhole itself um which is why i think modular ai is is really what like companies are really looking at right now is like how can i use ai for the specific use case and get the best result right over time um i would be i'd be really it, I don't. I don't see AI getting that human creativity spark that you have, and that you're able to employ. Right? I mean, time will tell. Um, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. Uh, yeah, I, I would say. If, I don't know if you do, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. We're also seeing a lot of people getting bored with AI. I mean, right? AI is capable of doing a lot of really great things, but. Right now, you're seeing artwork that gets shared to groups, and it's like, look, it's the cast of Seinfeld, but they're on the Starship Enterprise. And a lot of the comments now are like, it's AI, I'm bored with this, I don't want to see this anymore. Because it was novel, and it still has a lot of uses, like, you know, obviously. But there's still just a lot of people who are like, yeah, I don't want to read AI stuff. You know, if I'm paying you 20 bucks, give me something that a person made, not that a machine regurgitated. Yeah, and I I see a a... I, I can see a use with writing, and you can tell me whether or not you think you think this is off or not. But I, I see it to be able. I like it because if I don't have a specific like premise, right? Like it'll give me a premise, and then everything after that's my own creation, right? Like, I think if you use it as the tool that it, it's meant to be used at and it can be used at effectively, I think that it can supplement really well, well. One thing I think it actually might be pretty good at is what we talked about earlier, which is um, taking, you know, 20 different human writers work and turning it into one unified style. I think I think it can understand meaning pretty well. Um, so I think it could be used to. Um, uh, to to communicate um, meaning in like a unified way. Now, I don't know that what we have today would be very good at like it wouldn't it wouldn't make a, a funny product like you know your the Star Trek game you worked on for instance. Mm -hmm. It's yeah, and I think that's actually a really good use because I guess in a roundabout way, if it's used in an advisory capacity, I'm definitely okay with it because then it becomes a tool like Photoshop and Wordly and 
all these things which we created to enhance art, but using it to replace it completely, you know, and for people at home, if you're wondering why that's a big deal, as someone who struggled to convince people the validity of what I do and a lot of other people who do it, like I was at Gen Con and people would walk up to artists and they would just flat out insult them. And they would say, I'm not paying 50 bucks for that gorgeous watercolor you did. And it's like, but it took me over like 50 hours to paint. They're like, screw that. I don't want that. That's crap. You should get a real job. And it's, it's just incredible how we live in a culture where we desperately need art, film, movies, anime, all this. And yet some people have a chip on their shoulders and they don't like how it's made. They think that all of us should, you know, be out there, you know, and even like, and day jobs are important to artists too, obviously. But it just seems like a lot of people don't understand that, like, just with how, like, you know, the donuts get made, this is how your books get made. This is how all this. And I know that we've talked about how AI can be really, really good for, like, enhancing it and doing all this. The powers that be really are more interested in using it to take over the process. And then you don't need a writer's room to make jokes. You have an intern with a list of prompts created by the executives typing it into a computer and picking out the best bits. Right. Yeah, that does seem to be what it is now. Like, um, I mean, that, that's one big thing the writer strike was, uh, you know, fighting against is the idea that they would have to edit AI scripts. It's almost like it's better to write it from scratch. I'm sure it is today, at least. And I'm not saying that, like, you know, AI is not going to generate, like, you know, the next great thing. I mean drawing upon a million books, you know, using advanced algorithms to determine what people like. I mean, we have, we have that now. I mean, Google Ads, uh, which is in pretty much every site and software that you use, it studies what you buy. It studies what you look at. I mean, I learned recently that Facebook's algorithm actually tracks how long you spend looking at a picture or an ad. And even if it's only for like three or four seconds, it immediately goes, oh, you want to see more of this ad. And it just starts that pain thing throughout everything. And the perils of the 21st century, I guess the only thing that I can really say about that is at least we don't live in an era with the Black Death. (laughs) (laughs) Not to to make light of it, but you know, hey, if you add, do I want to live 100 years ago or now? And the answer is going to be now because... As, much, as cool as it would be to go back to, like, you know, before the Great War and seeing how American society develops, I kind of like the Internet. I kind of like air conditioning. <laughs> well, there's still time. Great. There's still time for the Black Death to make a comeback. Before you know it, people will be, um, you know, uh, making YouTube videos about uh, doing your own research on the plague. You know, I learned in a very dumb way. The Black Death is still around today. We just have antibiotics. So <laughs> it's called tularemia. And I know that because I got bitten by a chipmunk once, and that was the dumbest thing that's ever happened to me. (laughs) It just was. (laughs) (laughs) Like, for real, I get a chipmunk got stuck in my bird feeder. I'm trying to shake it out. On the way out, it like ninja flips onto my hand, gives me the tiniest little scratch. And next thing I know, uh, I have several of my friends who are doctors because uh, I posted about it on Facebook. And they're like, Haha, funny joke, get your ass to the ER right now. I'm like, But it's 
tiny scratch. We're all laughing because it's funny. <laughs> Get your ass to the ER right now. And then I have three doctors outside of my room arguing with each other. It was almost like a Three Stooges bit. And at one point, one of them leans his head in and goes, hey, dude, are you telling the truth? Like, if you want a cool story, we'll back you up. Are you really bitten by a chipmunk? And I'm holding this centimeter long scratch on my knuckle going, it's real. I was bitten by a chipmunk. And then I hear the doctors outside going, uh, well, what do we do? What's the protocol? Rabies shot into the Remia vaccine. Oh, that's going to fuck up his whole weekend. And you know what, audience? It really did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm glad that that's what they were worried about, right? Like, you're trying to get what is potentially, like, life-saving care. And they're like, yeah, but it's going to fuck up this dude's weekend. He's not going to be able to go out. They were, well, they were also looking at it like, that's a tiny scratch. Are you sure a chipmunk bit you? And I'm just staring at them like, I it, his mouth touched me, man. I don't know what to tell you. I don't even think I should be here. I It, it broke the skin barely. Um, so, John, you have multiple things coming out at the moment. Things you've worked on. Um Tell, why don't you tell us a little bit about about your work that's been released so that we can give some people some um, some direction on where they can go to check that stuff out. Uh, if you want to check out my Renegade stuff, go to uh, just Google Renegade Game Studios. Uh, I was the junior dev on My Little Pony, and um, I've worked on Power Rangers. And actually, the newest property with Renegade that I'm working on and I didn't work on the core book, but I'm working on the next book, which I can't say because we haven't announced it yet, but I'm working on Werewolf 5th Edition. Oh, fantastic. Oh, I'm, That's got to be really exciting for you. I know that Werewolf means a lot to you. It, it is. Um, it's interesting because it's kind of a reboot. Uh, they've changed some things about Werewolf for 5th Edition like they did with Vampire and Hunter. But um, getting to see behind the scenes, I'm pretty excited for what's coming next. And, um, yeah. And also, like you said, it's werewolf was one of the first long chronicles I ever ran. And yeah, I still own, like, I don't own that many role-playing books anymore because, you know, I got older and I didn't really want to like keep them around as much, but I still have all my werewolf, the apocalypse books. Yeah. I I mean, I mean, I imagine you do. I mean, I've, I've kept a couple around that, that, I don't play anymore um, just to have them just in case that day comes again. Right. <laughs> so I definitely I've got a, a copy of exalted sidereals that has been in my car for multiple cars. <laughs> just on that, that moment when someone calls you for an exalted game, you never know. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, any, anything else um, anywhere else we can, we can plug your, your stuff, your, your socials, anything like that. Uh, you could find me on the rapidly shrinking Twitter as JK Myth. Um, also, uh, I've been around. I'm a blue sky as Triceratops. Um, the name I wanted was taken already, and so I just went with my favorite dinosaur, and I stand by that choice. And then, <laughs> hell yeah, yeah. And then um, you could find me on Facebook as JD Kennedy, and um, I would just be the account that's got the probably a cartoon avatar uh, where my face should be. awesome can i can i put you on the spot real quick john sure okay so we had talked briefly um a while back about trying to 
get our past guests together for a one shot game, uh, would you be interested in being a, a either a DM or a, a player on a one shot game with us? Oh, I'd love it. I'm down. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah, we want to get get guests together and and do a, a little funsies. Yeah, I feel like getting uh, all of us together with Bianca and Jackie would be a really fun little one shot game. I bet. Yeah, that could be really great, for sure. All right, well, that's going to wrap it up for us, guys. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, and make sure to check out John's work and his socials, um, and we will see you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye.